If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. On today's episode, we're delving into the story of the Silk Road. But before we begin, don't be misled by the name. It's not a single road, and there was far more to it than simply selling silk. Speaking with Rebecca Franks, on today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, Sam Willis leads us on a journey across the globe and through the centuries, as he explores this famous network of trade routes. Answering listener questions along the way, Sam shows how the true legacy of the Silk Road was not just the sharing of goods, but also of knowledge, culture and religion. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. We're here to talk about the Silk Road, perhaps the most famous trade route in history. But just what was the Silk Road? It's a fairly disingenuous term, actually, because it wasn't a road. It was lots of roads. In fact, it's even more complex than that. I suppose it wasn't, it wasn't even a road at all. It was lots of routes. More like a network is a way to think about it. It connected east with west. It led to an extraordinary change of cultures. Obviously, it connected west with east as well. Not only was there an overland Silk Road, of course, there was also the maritime Silk Road connecting east with west. And the same ideas applies to that. So it's not a single 
maritime Silk Road either. It's not one route. It's loads, loads of roads, loads of routes. It's a network. It's a bit like a web. When was it around? It's an interesting question, this. You could say that it, it actually is still around. It never really went anywhere. I'm firmly in the belief of seeing strands of continuity. It certainly went through periods of more popularity than others, usually due to the presence or the absence of wars somewhere along the road or the roads. But because of the landmass we're talking about is so enormous, it's thousands and thousands of miles, it's very difficult to actually make generalisations about it. But one thing we do know is that it began very specifically with Han Dynasty China, who opened the trade route shortly after 130 BCE. And more specifically, you can actually date it to the expedition of Zhang Tian in 138 BC. See, he heads west and returns, and he demonstrates that westward travel is possible. The thing about Zhang Tian, though, is that he's a, he's a well-known diplomat, and it's a classic of sort of kind of Chinese record keeping and history. Because he's important, he's worth remembering, you see. But it's worth considering the fact that Zhang Chen didn't randomly head west along a route that he'd invented. I firmly believe that a lot of these routes and connections already existed and that Zhang Chen, as a famous diplomat, was the first person to do it. So we've got a good starting point, or at least a, a reasonable starting point, at 138 BC. And it's called the Silk Road, but as you've said, it's actually roots. When was the name coined and why was it called the Silk Road? Uh, this is a wonderful question. It's actually uh, not called the Silk Road until the 19th century, until 1877. You have a German geographer and a traveller, a guy called Ferdinand von Richthofen, and he first used this term to describe this well-travelled pathway between Europe and East Asia. But what he actually said was Seidenstrasse. So uh, that's probably the term we should be calling it, not the Silk Road. That leads us on to our first listener question, which comes from Erin Yi on Twitter. What were the major cities along the Silk Road between Europe and China? Uh, again, it depends which route you took, but there are some really key and important cities. If you're going from west to east, I would say that Venice is your most important either start or end point. And from there to Istanbul, then Damascus, Baghdad, Bukhara, Samarkand, Khotan, Donhuang, Xi'an. But from Xi'an in China, it then splits, you see. You can kind of go to Luoyang and then from there, north, south or straight on. It goes north to Beijing, south to Guangzhou or straight on to Ningbo. And these are all important ends to the route. There's a fascinating southern branch as well, which went from Baghdad down to Isfahan in Iran. Uh, it was the most beautiful city, Isfahan. And then down to Hormuz, which is a port. And from there to the Arabian Sea. Um, and I think the key thing to note here is that both of these routes, one ending in Hormuz and the others in Shanghai or Ningbo, they end in ports and Venice on the other side. And the maritime aspect of this is all crucially important. You can't actually understand the significance of the Silk Road without understanding the port cities at either end of it. And can we turn now to what was actually traded on the Silk Road? Is there a clue in the name? What goods would have been traded? <laughs> There's a bit of a clue in the name, um, but it's more of a kind of an inspirational clue to make you think about all the other things that could be traded. So, uh, yes, they traded silk, and silk was a monopoly of, of the Chinese for thousands of years. The myth has it that it was 
discovered by a princess who was sitting under a mulberry tree and a cocoon of a silkworm fell into her tea and began to unravel. And from that, she realised that there was this incredible strand of material which could be woven. It's very strong, it's very beautiful, it has this natural sheen. And the Chinese were the only people who knew how to farm it, they knew how to weave it and to work it. But once you understand that and that the the silk that's traded is the foundation of it, then it becomes a kind of a, a key to opening a, a box of treasures because it, they didn't just trade silk. They traded all sorts of things. They traded spices, precious metals, handicrafts. Chinese very, very good at making the most beautiful things and silk dresses and silk coats was not the only thing. They traded weapons, animals, clothing. They traded people, a huge amount of stuff. Now, with all of this movement of people, and goods. They also came to exchange ideas. And I think that's the most important takeaway about the Silk Road is, yes, there are goods going from left to right and right to left, but it's the ideas that are important. Religion, science, maths, art. Religion's probably the most powerful example. If you go to China, the single easiest way of demonstrating the power of the Silk Road is to go to Xi'an, where there is an enormous mosque. And it's a very old one, so eight, mid-8th century mosque, 740s. And uh, similarly, if you want a more modern version, you can go to see the Catholic Cathedral in Guangzhou, which is, which is fabulous. Um, or the, the um, I don't know, the, the giant Buddhas in Dunhuang. So you've got religion spreading through uh, China, spreading through Asia. And of course, you've got Christian sites all over Eurasia as well. And it's all made possible by this great connection of people, which happens on these roads, these routes known as the Silk Road. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Can you paint a picture of what it would have been like to travel on the routes? I think it depended, really, who you were. If you were new to it, then the experience would have been absolutely astonishing to get a sense of 
the enormous variety of cultures and people and languages and architecture in particular, I think that you are going to come across and the need to carefully walk your way through those cultures if you had any chance of actually coming back alive. But if you, if you were a merchant who did this for a living, was maybe born and brought up as the, the child of a merchant on the Silk Road, then I think the majority of the time it would have been pretty boring and pretty uncomfortable. Um, it would have been very hot, it would have been very cold. It very much, I think, depends who you were, where you were and when you were, but an enormous variety. I think that the real joy of this is that you wouldn't necessarily know what was ever going to happen and who you were going to meet. That Once you were on the Silk Road, the possibility and the likelihood of something unusual and exciting and interesting happening was actually quite high. So although the majority of the time it would have been dull and boring, the potential for it being amazing was always there. You mentioned earlier there was a risk you might not come back alive. How dangerous was it? The first thing that comes to mind is some drawings in a cave in China, in the far, far uh, west of China, which I saw, which depicted bandits robbing a merchant. There definitely were thieves. There definitely were robbers. The environment was utterly terrifying in some places, uh, particularly places like the Taklamakan, a, a great desert there, which is uh, roughly translated as the place of ruin. So you're not just being threatened by other people. You're not just being threatened by other merchants who maybe want what you've got and uh, robbers who are just there to, to, to prey on people passing by. But it's the environment, I think, which would have really been your number one enemy. Did many people travel the length of the Silk Road? It's very difficult to give a concrete answer. What we do know is that very few merchants travelled the entire length of the Silk Road, and that's an important distinction to make. So the majority of the merchants travelled short distances to and fro and became experts on particular legs and became well-known on those legs. And then that's how it all really worked, because they would have known the tax collectors and the local government people and the local soldiers. This kind of trading network doesn't work at all unless there are trusted human connections all the way along it. And by only trading on short stretches of the Silk Road, those chains, little links in the chains became possible. So um, relatively speaking, no, it was the goods that went the whole way along it rather than the people. One person we do know who, who travelled a lot on the Silk Road was, was Marco Polo, who began his travels in, in 1271. Can you tell us a bit more about his journey and, and what he saw along the way? He's a fascinating character, Marco Polo, and he went away for a very, very long time. It's something like 1271 to 1295, and a really significantly large amount of his life, anyone's life, in that period in the 13th century. The first point to note about Marco Polo is that he's not just done this off the top of his head and in his own way. He's following in the footsteps of other people, most notably his father and his uncle. So there's a family connection there. They've been to some of, not by no means all, some of the places that he has been. So in some respects, he's not really a pioneer in terms of being a European. There, there are also, it should be emphasised, other Europeans doing the same kind of thing around the time that Marco Polo is. What makes him stand out is that he writes it all down and it becomes the first sort of proper travel log, travel story. He's a Venetian. Um, he comes back after all of these wonderful, wonderful travels where he's been to the court of the Kublai Khan. 
also he spends a lot of time with a very famous Muslim scholars and scientists, astronomers, architects, cartographers. So he, he does meet a lot of fascinating people, but they're very much at the kind of the top of the tree of the Silk Road. Yes, he's spending his, his entire time with normal people and normal merchants, you might say, but he does get to interact at a kind of a, a, a much higher level than anyone else really has done. So he's a Venetian. He comes back after all of these magnificent travels and finds out that Venice is at war with Genoa and he gets put in prison and he actually tells the story of all of his travels to his cellmate. And I was wonderful to suddenly discover that you're in a cell with someone like Marco Polo who's experienced the world in a way that so few had. So a fascinating person. And if you read his diaries, his books, journals, there's still quite a challenge to work out what's true and what isn't true. And that's part of the fun of it because he, he was certainly, he was good with the story, Marco Polo. And, um, as was, the, was the guy who wrote it all down for him. So you've got to be pretty careful. There are, however, some things which are, are certainly true. He's, he's amazed. He's constantly amazed by animals. And he's amazed by people and food and traditions. And that all feels very natural. But a, a little game you can play is you just go and read the travels of Marco Polo and at the end of each page, write down what you think is true and what he's made up. Sometimes I'm imagining you get so swept up in the story, there's a bit of you that doesn't even mind. <laughs> no, I mean, I, well, as a historian, I think this is really important. Uh, it's, it's a point I'd like to make. In the case of Marco Polo, it's really interesting. I don't think it matters what actually is true or not. What matters is that Marco Polo would like us to believe that it's true. He's a man who's in control of his story. He's in control of his narrative. He's got a pretty flexible relationship with facts and truth. And, and the whole point about history is not to go through it and to try and and make sure that everything we know is entirely true. History is much more creative than that. The world is, is, is much more fun than that. And part of the joy of Marco Polo's work is to um, just let it kind of wash over you and bathe yourself in the chaotic and wonderful stories of the past. Goods and trade were the, the reason, really, for the Silk Road's existence, but actually the people crisscrossing countries and continents, they brought with them ideas, culture, art, religion. What was the impact? Well, I don't know. I, I think goods and trade is one of the results of the Silk Road's existence. It's not necessarily the cause of it. There is an innate human desire to travel and explore and to meet other people. And I think that that's actually at the heart of it. So you've got all of these different cultures kind of all existing. They all know each other exists. It's not like they're in a complete bubble. They did know about each other and curiosity drove people to want to explore and, and yes, take commercial opportunity. But um, I think the first point there is it, it's not necessarily the goods that created the Silk Road. I think it was something a bit more... Um, a bit bit nicer, a bit of a nicer story rather than people just trying to make a buck. What was the cultural impact of the Silk Road? There are good and there are bad parts to this question. So the good, the exchange of knowledge, of mathematics, astronomy, uh, wonderful inventions like paper, not so wonderful inventions like gunpowder. Cultural exchange is always uh, has the good side and the bad side to it. Yes, it's wonderful. You, you have this great sort of connecting and meeting together of diverse populations, but that always throughout history comes with friction. So you can't really have one without the other. It's messy in the long run. I'd like to think it was good. I mean, if you take a really long view of history, of human history, then the first half of it is 
people moving away, people kind of evolving and coming from the cradle of humanity in Africa and going going out and spreading all over the world. And then the other half of it is of people coming back together again. And that happens with people travelling distances. They can do it overland, they can do it on foot, they can do it on camel and horse, however it might be, on donkey, or they can do it by ship. Um, and this is such an important part of that great re-meeting, the great reconnecting of populations all over the world. And that's a lovely story, I think. And at the heart of the Silk Road, that's that's why it's really important. More generally... What benefits and drawbacks did it bring? It was so important with numeracy, with the creation and spread of art and appreciation of other cultures. I think that's why it's so important. So on the one hand, yes, people are learning how to do arithmetic because it's spread to areas of the world which didn't know about it. But on the other, you're also appreciating those cultures who have invented something so truly wonderful. It's interesting thinking about it, I think, in a bit later on in history, that like the 18th century with East Indiamen and that kind of impact. Now, that had a, a terrible cultural impact through colonisation, yes, but also if you go to European museums now, you can see a wonderful array of items which have been collected over time because they've been appreciated. And they've been appreciated for the skill and the cultural complexity which has led to the creation of um, some of the most remarkable artefacts. And this isn't just a one-way process. This isn't just people in the West collecting goods which have come from the East. It goes the other way around. So if you go to the Forbidden City in Beijing now, you can go to this, there's a hall of clocks. The one thing that did go the other direction was automata and clockmaking. So the Europeans were better at that than anyone else. So it isn't just, just a one-way process of paper and arithmetic and gunpowder coming east to west. It's the, the goods that went west to east as well. I think we need to, to learn and appreciate more about that. But um, clockmaking and automata is one of them. And when was the heyday of the Silk Road? I think the heyday of the Silk Road would have been maybe a 13th century, the 14th century. And that's when Samarkand, which I was talking about before in Uzbekistan, becomes this magnificent city at the very heart of the Silk Road under the Timurids uh, and Timur in particular. And that's because you need a certain amount of time to consolidate the wealth and to have it really kind of bedded down and established as a trade route, as a place that people can and have made real money before. It's not necessarily the period I'm kind of most fond of, if you think about the history of the Silk Road. I think the early history is fascinating. Those first Chinese diplomat who travels all the way there, Zhang Qian, he has a great deal of trouble even getting there. He's actually imprisoned by the Zhongnu for 13 years before he even gets out the other side and go and explore where he was meant to go explore. Then he's imprisoned on the way back. He has to, he has to escape twice. He's, he's, um, has a very tough time of it. I think that's fascinating. And it also, I think, tells us a great deal about the value of the Silk Road. So the Zhongnu aren't just imprisoning this Chinese diplomat on a whim. They know they're in a really, really important, powerful position of a middleman between two or more really, really significant cultures. So that means that in some form, the Silk Road already existed. And it certainly demonstrates that they knew all about its geopolitical importance. I think that's a fascinating period. So before the first official Chinese diplomat went, that's when I'd like to have gone and explored it. 
And if we could turn now to the end of the Silk Road, although you've already hinted that perhaps there is no end, but we've got a, a listener question from Rosemary Kelty on Twitter. And she asks that, I've read that the Ottoman Empire ended the Silk Road. Why did they seek to destroy the Silk Road and, and wouldn't they have benefited from the continued commerce? Yes, I think the answer to that is in the question. They didn't because they knew about the uh, benefits of it. There's a really interesting aspect to this. The Silk Road didn't really work without the Venetians, okay? So the Venetians are so important. So the goods come overland, they get to Gaza, maybe Tyre, a port in Lebanon, a bit further up the coast. Uh, maybe they got to Istanbul. But what happens then? And the answer is the Venetians happens then. The Venetians have been living in a swamp <laughs> in the north of the Adriatic there. And... um become incredibly rich because they become the next stage of being a middleman. They make the ships that transport the goods all over Europe. When the Ottomans come along, they decide that they don't want to give the Venetians trading privileges. The idea that the Silk Road stops is an idea that has come down through us through a lot of really, really cross Venetians. It's a very specific take on what actually happened. More broadly, there are so many Silk Roads and Silk Routes, the Ottomans can't even begin to stop them all. To say that they tried and that they did is wrong. To say that they wanted to is probably wrong because they knew the value of it anyway. To say that they really wanted to piss off the Venetians is very true. This, again, moves on in history. The, the, the Ottomans decide to have a go at the Venetians even more by um, building ships. So the, the Ottomans don't have a navy. Uh, they build themselves one, and they do it when they get to Istanbul and they take on Constantinople. There's another really important thing that's happening at the same time, and that is the development of global maritime power. So it's not necessarily that the Silk Road stopped, it's that they changed. And one of the most important changes was the Portuguese. And the Portuguese worked out how to build ships that could go around the bottom of Africa. And they also started to develop navigational aids that help them do it, sea charts, uh, the courage, uh, the brains, uh, the money to actually do it. That happens at the same time. Why that happens is a really interesting question. And to a certain extent, it's got something to do with the Ottomans, is that people wanted to find another route to the east, which didn't involve going through Ottoman-controlled land. But that's only one part of it. The point is, is you've got another massive trade route opening up, and it's a maritime one. And that's when everything really, really shifts. Because you can get from Europe to Guangzhou or one of the other big Chinese ports. And you can do it really quickly. You can do it in a ship. I think that answers as well. Another listener question from Susie on Twitter was, did the Silk Road or routes continue in any capacity after the fall of Constantinople in, in 1453? Yes, absolutely. The Ottomans were definitely still interested in the treasures and luxuries of the East, without a shadow of a doubt. It was more difficult for some of those goods to get through Ottoman-controlled lands to European ships, but there were other ways of getting to Europe, uh, notably overland. You can just go up. You can go up and across rather than directly across to the Mediterranean, then onto ships. The Maritime Silk Road really kicks off then, and that's absolutely fascinating, the way that all of these different countries were all linked together by sea. And I've seen that firsthand. I've been in eastern Africa, and I've spoken to a guy who lived on an island there who has got Chinese DNA. I've walked along beaches in eastern Africa which have 
produced shards of Ming pottery. I was told by a fisherman there was some Chinese pottery washing up. I didn't believe him, but we managed to go there and explore it. And within 10 minutes, I had a 100 pieces of Ming Chinese porcelain in my hands. There are graves of Chinese sailors in Eastern Africa. There are 13th century coins from Chinese ships in Malacca. It's all there, and we know it happened. We're just struggling to put the pieces of the the puzzle together, but it won't be long before archaeologists have got this nailed. But it's fascinating how that world worked, because the Chinese were not the only ones with maritime power, maritime capability, and maritime interests. So they're coming up against all sorts of other fascinating maritime states all around the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea. So I know you've travelled to many locations on, on the Silk Road. What has that experience been like? I did the Silk Road for the BBC, which was travelling from Venice to Beijing. And then I made a programme on the Maritime Silk Road for Nat Geo. And um, that was also amazing. And understanding how it all links together is suddenly sort of becomes clear and you appreciate just what an achievement it was. Maritime technology, I think, is such a, a crucial part of it. That's interesting. The way people navigated the actual Silk Road, I'm interested in that. How maps worked before maps, those little routes and mountain passes. You see, in China, in the mountains, there are these brilliant little mountain passes, which are which are nothing more than kind of tow tracks for donkeys, but they were so important to actually connecting these huge areas of the world together. Uh, I was recently in China exploring one part of the, those mountains um, just south of Xi'an, and uh, Understanding how people got through mountains, I think, is really, really important. But they managed to do it. I'd love to know how. Yeah, that's generations and generations of knowledge which is being passed on. That actually, if you go up here, you go around that corner, then you get to the mountain pass. That takes you through the mountains to the plains, and there you'll find other people doing different things, and then you meet them, and on you go. Um, and I hugely admire the courage of people who decided to just get up and give it a go. It sounds like there's also plenty for us still to discover about the history of the Silk Road and Silk Roots. Yeah, there absolutely is. And um, I'm really excited about the archaeology of it. It's quite hard to get your head around the actual scale of the territories involved. But when there's that much land involved, then there will be uh, the most wonderful archaeological discoveries to be made. And I think there are places like Tajikistan, I think, is fascinating as well. The northern routes of the Silk Road are brilliant. And interestingly, that's where the new the Silk Railroad runs. And I've also done that. And that's a railway line which now connects Europe with China directly. What was the long-term impact of the, the Silk Road? I think the long-term impact of the Silk Road is to do with celebrating connections. It's to do with bringing people and ideas together and appreciating the achievements of different cultures along the way. That's the the rosy way of looking at it. Um, The the bad way is to say that it was fundamentally important in in war and the shaping of nations, not only because of gunpowder being traded along it, but because of the value of it. It then became something that was disputed and that was fought over. And controlling it became hugely important, not only for raising money through taxes, but... um, strategically it became so significant it's interesting when you're talking about such a long period of time as well there's always going to be some fighting and some war involved and that's certainly the case with the silk road so you, you can't say all good or all bad it's it's a real mixture of the two why is it then that we've all become interested in the silk road 
that is one of the most interesting points about it. So the Silk Road is now a term that people are familiar with, really familiar with. Peter Frankopan wrote his wonderful book in 2015. I made my BBC documentary the same year or maybe the year after. And it's been one of the most viewed history documentaries ever made by the BBC. And because I think of those two profoundly impactful media types of content, people are familiar about it. But why that became important, I think it's all to do with the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. The Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, they launched this globally significant economic, geopolitical movement, investing hugely in countries throughout Asia, a way of of wielding Chinese soft power, essentially. And um, through that, it was a phrase that we became more familiar with. And then it becomes something that, you know, it lands on the ears of people and they have a rough idea about what it is, but don't know anything about it, want to find out more about it. So what? it's, it's a really, really interesting question. I don't think anyone's really worked it out, but I think the answer is China. The answer is China. They launched something and we all suddenly went, oh, that's a good idea. Let's find out a little bit about the history of that. That was historian and broadcaster Sam Willis, who travelled the Silk Road in 2016 for a BBC TV series and has explored both the Maritime Silk Road and the Silk Railroad for documentaries on National Geographic. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.